Welcome back to the Beacons of Bravery show. Today, I'm so excited to announce my guest, Tony Frazier. He is truly an inspiration and a beacon. He currently serves as the director of the Salem Croc Center, which he'll describe a little bit in this episode, but he's lived a life of service, including working with Habitat for Humanity. He has rebuilt homes in Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina. His whole life is geared at serving low-income and at-risk youth, and you will just be so inspired in this episode by what he has to say. We'll talk about his framework for what it means to have a vision, a mission, and a method in your life, and he truly lives it out. We talk about the way to get unstuck in your life, if you feel that way, and we talk about the only way to get over your fear is to step into it. You'll want to listen to the very end because that's where he drops the major value bombs at the very end. And one of my favorite quotes that he leaves us with is, there's no greater joy in life than living out who you are and giving yourself to the world in that space. So tune in and prepare to be inspired. Welcome to the Beacons of Bravery podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Norman, former perfectionist, people pleaser, and rule follower who woke up one day and realized I'd been living somebody else's dream because of my fear of stepping outside the lines. That's why I started this podcast, to interview authors, entrepreneurs, and everyday people who learn to overcome their fears and obstacles in order to live the life of their dreams shine the light on how we can live the life of our dreams. Tony Frazier, welcome to the Beacons of Bravery podcast. How are you? Great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited because you are a very inspirational person for sure. I like to give the audience a little bit of how we know each other. And we really don't know each other, but we have an important person in common, and that's your wife, Colleen. She and I have been friends since childhood, like basically since five years old. And even though we've been friends that long, we kind of lost touch in the college and early married years, raising kids because she's in Oregon. Y'all are in Oregon. I'm in, in Louisiana, but we've caught back up and got connected. So I really have only met you one time and that's at your wedding, right? Great. Yes. You have a super story and I can't wait to get to know the audience to get to know you for sure. So I like to start cool. out with kind of a fun question just to get to know you. And I think this could lead places for sure. But the question I want to ask you is what is your favorite place that you've ever traveled to and why? For me, that was um, hiking the Camino de Santiago in Portugal. Uh, it was a 10-day hike. It was about 140 miles and uh, from Lisbon in the south to Coimbra in the north. And it was just amazing. So when you're hiking, you're moving much slower through the countryside, right? Mm-hmm. And you're able to walk with people, talk with people. Uh, we went through villages and towns and cities and countryside and forest trails and uh, all kinds of things that, and then there you would stop at these, these little cafes 
and uh, meet with the local folks there. I had several conversations along the way with the owners of the different spaces and so forth. And uh, it was just so fun to, to meet people from all over the world, really. I made a good friend from Lithuania. In fact, my daughter and I are working on planning a trip now to Europe, and we'll probably start there in Lithuania because it's up north. Mm-hmm. She hiked with us for several miles on the on the trail, and I got to know her. She was trying to find herself at that point. She had just graduated college. So mm-hmm. my daughter is in that same place, my daughter Corbin, who's 20 years old. So I'm excited for them to spend some time together too, because my daughter is now where she was then in terms of her life and her plans for the future and so forth. So yeah, we, that was just an amazing trip. It's funny on a trip like that, you know, when you typically, when you go on vacation, uh, you know, you you eat everything in sight and you don't really do a lot of heavy exercise. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this kind of a trip, you know, every day what you're going to be doing and it's hiking eight to 12, 13 miles. And so you don't feel guilty about eating all the fun stuff right either along the way so so yeah that was a that was just one of my that was probably the my most favorite trip ever I have a couple follow-up questions to that because one that's on my bucket list I want to do that for sure Ah, that's a comment yes but um did you go by your you went by yourself uh kind of so I met some folks through another trip we had taken uh, back east to, to uh, meet some family friends or stay with some family friends. And he started talking about the, the trip. And I started asking a lot of questions. And he said, well, you should come. Mm-hmm. I said, well, send me some information. So I met this guy one day and didn't really know him that well, but we hit it off. And, and uh, he was an older gentleman, full of lots of fun stories. Mm-hmm. And so he sent me the information. When I got home, I started looking at tickets they were up around 13, 1400 and I was him and Han. And then one day they dropped to 900 and I just bought a ticket. And then I had to figure out what I needed to go. Right. So I met them, him and one other gentleman over there from the States here. And then we took off down the trail. And isn't it really a place where a lot of people do kind of go to find themselves? Because you're kind of solitary, hiking, doing all that. You have a lot of time to think, yes, and a lot of time to visit if you're hiking with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, yeah, some some people go. Some for some, it's a it's a faith and spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. For others, it's a the physical challenge of of hiking the distance. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, people come for for different reasons, and that's part of the fun of it too. Though is is just bumping into people along the way and figuring out where they came from. You stay in hostels, or or they're called albergues in in Portugal. Mm-hmm. And so in the evenings in the, in the albergues, you meet people also who are pilgrims. You're considered pilgrims when you're walking on the, on the trail. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of fun conversations in the evenings with folks from all around the world. So is it like you have a guide or, I mean, there's daily things you do? Kind of. Um, so there is a cool trail app. You okay. get on the, on the phone there. And it shows you the trail and stuff. It didn't used to have that, obviously, right? And so that made it a little easier. So as we'd head out for the day, we'd kind of estimate about how far we wanted to go and then essentially call ahead to make sure that we had a place to sleep when we got where we were going. The longest day we did was 14 miles. And boy, were our feet tired by the end of that. <laughs> by the end of that, we were ready to sit down. And some days were eight, some days were 10. 
Right. Uh, it only rained on us, I think, once towards wow. the end, a little bit. Yeah. Went in October, which was a great time to go because the, the crowds were less. Mm -hmm. We didn't have to fight for sleeping space. Yeah. I, I think I took a, gosh, I don't, I'm not sure I had 30 pounds in my backpack. Watched a lot of videos before I went mm -hmm. so I could figure out what to take. And most of the videos kept saying, don't take a bunch of crap. <laughs> and they would show you all the crap they took and left along the way. <laughs> and so, so that helped me figure out how big of a backpack to get. And it's amazing. It's amazing how you can survive on very little, very little stuff that you take with you. Right. Well, that's cool. So you definitely inspired me to check that off my bucket list. Cool. <laughs> okay. So moving on, I wanted to know what you do currently for a living. And then we'll talk about that a little bit. So I'm the uh, director for the Salem Croc Center. Croc Center is a community center. There's 26 of them around the nation. They were, so Croc is Ray Croc of McDonald's. Oh. Uh, he died and left his fortune to his wife, Joan Croc. And uh, she had strong connections with the Salvation Army. And in San Diego, um, started having conversations with city leaders about the potential for a place, creating a space where uh, low-income families and low-income children could have opportunity to learn and thrive and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so they conceived the notion of a Croc Center, and Joan Croc said, well, if the Salvation Army will lead the project, I will fund it. So $90 million later, the first Croc Center was built in San Diego, and then we were we were the third Croc Center built here in Salem, Oregon, uh, 10 years ago. We've been here 10 years. Uh, so when she, she was so happy with how that turned out that when she passed away, she left $1.5 billion, billion with a B, to the Salvation Army to build Croc Centers around the nation. So that's kind of her legacy. And of course, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of helping young people who struggle find, find their way in life. Uh, really resonated with her vision for what the Croc Centers should be. So we have 95,000 square feet here, two swimming pools, a leisure pool with a lazy river and slides and all that, mm -hmm. and then a competition pool. So we host a lot of uh, swim meets for the local school districts, things like that. We also have a, a uh, workout facility with all kinds of really high-tech equipment. You can go on a, on a jog on one of our on one of our uh, running machines, if you want, you can run in Sweden or you can watch your favorite TV show. And then we have a gym and we have community meeting space. We have a preschool. We do, um, we do preschool promise, it's called here in Oregon, which is basically free preschool for low-income families. Mm. And we do summer camps, which are starting here in about a week. Our first week out, we're going to have about 100 kids in the building, uh, mainly for elementary age. And then my favorite piece of this right now is um, I finally I finally got high school kids in here. So again, my passion is helping uh, disadvantaged youth, you know, find their way. And we got a grant from the school district to serve Title I kids, low-income uh -huh. kids, uh, from three of the high schools here. Uh, and we'll be able to utilize that grant from now until, until the end of the year, actually, helping high school kids catch up with their education. And then we're also going to do workforce um, skills training pieces since we have a great place to teach that stuff. Yeah. I'm really excited that we're, we're going to be serving high school kids here in the building soon. Yeah. 
and you had to work pretty hard to get that to happen, didn't you? Yeah, it took me two years. <laughs> Just <laughs> beating the street and keeping my ears and eyes open and connecting and networking and so forth. And, and actually through my network, one of the assistant superintendents of the Salem-Kaiser School District reached out and asked if we would be interested in doing learning pods. And that turned into a few months of conversation and then um, a formal process of applying for the grant funding. Yeah, we got some of that. So you just, you never give up chugging along and eventually things come together. Well, I mean, that perseverance is paying off. I want to kind of go back in time a little bit because you've mentioned your passion is at-risk youth. And I know you've had a history of working, you know, in different communities with that. But maybe kind of describe a little bit of your upbringing. um, What led you to kind of where you are and your passion for that? Yeah. I mean, I'm first generation here. My mother immigrated uh, Mm -hmm. to the States. And I think through... I mean, she worked hard. So my, my mom is an amazing woman, raised two kids. You know, my, my, uh, my dad left when I was young. And so my mom raised, raised us two kids on, on uh, a waitress's salary. And that was back when minimum wage was three thirty-five an hour. I don't know how she did it still to this day, <laughs> as I think back, but we never knew we were poor, right? We didn't, we didn't know we didn't have much because we had the, the love of our mother. Mm-hmm. Anyway, as I grew up, she was very intent on college education. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So then I thought, well, business. I knew I was going because she pounded it into my head as I was, as I was getting older. And uh, so I went to school and uh, long story short, got a degree in finance. Wasn't sure what to do with that. I was working for a builder when, when I was in school. And so when I graduated, I realized that if I learned, if I learned the construction trade skills to the extent that I could build whatever I needed, whenever I wanted to, that would be a value to my life. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed with, with that employer and and went to work full time, learning the construction trade skills. Nine years into that, I thought, well, I probably should try to get some mileage out of my degree. I built our first home then too, uh, while I was working for that builder, he was a great guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I got out there and started looking for work. Well, with a finance degree, you're looking at banking and insurance and things like that. And so I was getting these interviews and I was walking through the facilities when I would get the tours and things. And I was looking at these eight by eight foot cubicles. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I can do that all day long. So I've been outside, right? Creating and building stuff. And uh so uh, let's see, one thing led to another and I was on doing some side work somewhere and uh, a gentleman offered me a position as a construction project manager at his company. And it was a minority owned firm that was growing and they needed, I was their first construction project manager. Mm-hmm. And so, so I went to work for him and I'm like, okay, I'm in management. Yeah, I got a truck and a phone. I was managing projects from Corvallis, Oregon to Portland, Oregon. Uh, and everything from commercial to federal to residential and just having a blast doing that. Love that work. But what pushed me kind of out of that or, or it caused me to be in, get introspective, it was a smaller company. The boss and his wife both worked in the company and they didn't get along. <laughs> and so I was caught in the middle of that and it was just starting to kind of create some inner turmoil. And that's when I got introspective and I thought, okay, 
I need to earn a salary to take care of my family, but I want to do it in some format that I can give back to the world, right? And so a friend of mine gave me an ad in the paper. So my wife and I had done uh, proctor care, which is care of adjudicated youth. We did that for five years with girls uh, in our home. And so we'd done the at-risk youth care. And so when my buddy gave me this ad saying, wanted someone to teach at-risk youth construction trade skills, no teaching certificate required, I thought, hmm, I might be able to do that. So I went and I applied and got an interview and after my first interview, I'm like, I really want to do this. And then I got a second interview, thankfully, and got to be out on the job site with the kids and things. Uh, it was to teach kids how to build um, Habitat for Humanity houses. Mm. Got the second interview, and I was really like, I want to do this. But what it meant for us, so I was leaving construction project management in the private world at a particular pretty decent salary at the time. Mm-hmm. What that meant for us was a 50% pay cut. So how I describe it is it's like backing up and taking that fork in the road. And it actually took me 10 years to recover that that pay. Mm. Uh, But it was 10 years that I worked in frontline service directly with those young people. And I just, I absolutely loved it. I, as much as teaching the skill set, what I loved was connecting with the individual to the extent that, that I'm able to communicate what they need to learn, right? And by that, I mean, if I have 12 kids on a job site, there's 12 different teaching styles that have to happen there, mm-hmm. right? And so, and then too, mentoring or coaching them in life, right? Just getting them to think differently about how they approach things, mm-hmm. right? Not everything has to be a fist fight. Uh, there's different ways to get at stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and that part was just, it was just great to see the kids grow, right? Mm-hmm. They, they taught me a lot. They're very perceptive. So, so I guess what grew my passion around this, this demographic is they're, they're super per- perceptive. They can spot a phony a mile away. Uh-huh. So I love that about them. But they have a lot of value to bring to the world. And society, typically, if they're in trouble and kind of troublemakers or whatever, whatever label they get put on them, kind of kicks them off to the side. Well, in that 10-year time frame that I did that, we built 20 houses for low-income families. So these are kids that society has gone, ah, they're never going to amount to anything. And they built 20 homes. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you, that doesn't equate in my head, right? right? They just need a different way to learn. And they need someone who cares enough to, to point them in that new direction, right? Mm-hmm. And then two, part of that process is building the relationship. So once I had the relationship and they knew that I loved them no matter what, I could, I could be pretty hard on them when they screwed up mm-hmm. and they would, they would take it, right, and, and take it the right way. And so that to me was, was just, um, it solidified really those years there, my passion for serving that, that demographic. And so now, you know, fast forward the, the tape to today and I'm about to have them in my building. I'm so excited. So excited. <laughs> Well, we need more people like you in the world, for sure, that don't just discount people who are on the periphery of society, we'll say. Yeah. And a question, do you keep in touch with any of those people? Do you know any of them? Do you have a so good story? A while, I'll, get a, I'll get a phone call. They'll find me through social media or whatever. And hey, you remember me? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so here's what's funny about that. 
I tell people who want to get into this kind of work, like you got to get in for the long haul. You never know, you never know the impact you're going to make, right? And initially it feels like they're not paying attention. So, you know, I've gotten phone calls from, from the kids and well, they're not kids now, right? And they're like, we, we have these conversations and they tell me about their kids and their full-time jobs they're holding and how much money they're making now. And I'm like, I didn't even think you were paying attention. Wow. It's just fun to hear that, right? Yeah. But you got to be in it for a while for that to circle back around. Right. Um, and so those stories are, are just fun for me. That's awesome. So you mentioned the big pay cut to do, I would say, more of your soul's calling than, yeah. you know, the financial calling. Right. So I'm sure... You know, the theme of this show, Beacons of Bravery, how to overcome fears and obstacles. I'm sure that was a big fear when you started out, like, how am I going to support my four daughters, right? Right. And what, you know, on that. So what was your biggest fear and how did you overcome it at that time, would you say? At that time, uh, it was probably the fact that I was going to go to work for a grant funded operation, Mm -hmm. right? And so... So those are year by year, unless you get biennium funding, then it could be two years at a time, mm-hmm. which it typically was in this case. And then, you know, what do you do? What do you do if it doesn't get funded again? Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was confident enough with my construction skills that I thought, well, if it doesn't get funded. I can always go back to construction. And then two at the time, you know, things have to align, right? And, and it's kind of how you know sometimes when, when um, God is doing his part of of the work too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife and I at the time managed a a manufactured home park, so we didn't have housing expenses, no Wi-Fi, no cable, no house payment, nothing, right? And 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 we got a salary for managing the park, and so that all fell at a time when if if I was ever going to do it, and kind of you know back up and take that fork, then was the time because it all just worked at that point. That there are some helpful components in there that at least help Colleen feel a little bit better about, about right. me taking a pay cut. That's neat. I also know, I think you do a bit of consulting and speaking, don't you? Yeah. How did you get into that? And that's going to lead into kind of your vision and other things sure. you're doing right now. So, uh, gosh, I guess what led towards that is when I... When I left Youth Build, it was called, when I was working with the kids and I became the uh, executive director of Habitat for Humanity here in Salem, I brought essentially that program that I was doing to Salem. I created my own version of it. And then I just got out in the community and beat the street to to get people excited about um, helping kids in that way. Mm -hmm. That brought some more supporters to Habitat, incidentally, which was nice. So then from there, I started started getting known, I guess, and I didn't know this was happening at the time, but I started getting known as the youth guy in Salem because I was fighting pretty hard for the kids. And, and some, uh, somebody started twisting my arm for my next gig after Habitat, which was workforce development, much larger organization. I had already connected with it. It was kind of, a, kind of not in great shape. And I learned that from the staff. And, but then somebody started asking me about becoming the director of that. And I'm like, I don't know if I want that organization. But I started looking into it and trying to see where it was at and all that. Well, what I found was they get federal money that then gets um, put out into the community to help kids and things like that. And so I thought, well, shoot, 
if I did apply and get that job, I'd have more resources to positively impact youth. Mm-hmm. But I was still dragging my feet. And it was funny, I had a, a gal, her name is Patrice. Uh, she works, she leads another nonprofit here in Salem, a large one, Family Building Blocks. And at the time she was on my board at Habitat, or she just came off my board at Habitat, but she was on the board at Workforce. And so when I was struggling with whether or not to make that move, so I was a little nervous because it was a considerably larger organization, I met with her, set a time to have coffee because I knew that she would help me feel better about not making the move and tell me that I should stay at Habitat. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know that she had actually served on the workforce board. And so she actually knew what kind of a space it was in mm-hmm. and wanted it to be better. So I sit down for coffee with her one day and I start kind of just lamenting my woes about the, the thought of changing jobs. And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, Tony, what's your problem? <laughs> I was shocked. I didn't, I did not expect that. And I said, well, I don't know what kind of team I would have there. Um, the organization doesn't seem to be in great shape. And I listed off some things and she's like, you can do this. They, they really need you over there. And I said, okay, I'll apply. And so anyway, so I applied and got the, the job at workforce that because I was out there connecting to get back to your question, respect to how did I get into like speaking and things like that? Mm-hmm. Um, people would ask me to come talk about kids and what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I could do that like without preparation, right? Oh. Put me, give me the crowd and I'll go. And, uh, and so I was, I was doing that. And then as, as those crowds got bigger over time, you know, I don't know, rotaries, things like that. Yeah. Um, I would inadvertently end up with other speaking gigs out of that. And I, my, I wanted to grow in that space. And so the way to get over your fear is to step into it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I decided whenever a speaking opportunity was offered to me and these aren't paid gigs, right. Right. Um, I would take it so I could learn and, and, and grow in that space. And so that's how I really kind of got my start in the speaking side of it. And then uh, the nonprofit consulting, I got to a point in workforce where it's a, it's a highly political dynamic. And by political, I mean, there's elected officials on the board. Some of them decided that they, uh, they thought we were being doing too much innovative stuff and we should just be managing money. Mm. And so long story short, I had a chat with my board president who was a business um, representative. And I said, I, I get it. If you want to go down this path and just manage money, that's great. I, it's just not me. Mm-hmm. I need to build. I need to create. I need to be doing stuff. And she understood too. And, and so I moved on and several of the staff uh, at the time, several of the great staff uh, moved on as well. And so then um, I started the consulting company at that point. And that's how I got into consulting. I actually just finished a gig last Friday, a third round with a, a same organization, which is kind of fun to see how the organizations kind of move through the years with their strategic planning. And what I do is vision, vision, mission, and um, strategy stuff for the organizations. But we have a particular goal. Um, Whiteboard Consulting Partners is our company. We have a particular goal, and that is to get those vision and mission statements down to 12 words or less. Mm. And it's so that people can remember them. Right. I see vision statements online or mission statements, and they're like paragraphs long. And I'm like, ah, oh, what, what's even the point? 
I'm about to count the words in mine. I think I'm, <laughs> I think I'm at like 15. So you were pretty sure. I was, I was impressed. I'm like, oh, got a nice, short, concise. Yeah. And it's amazing over time how you can keep looking at it. And I don't need that word. Like you can take words out and it still retains its meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wordy by nature when I write for sure. <laughs> But let's go into that a little bit, because I think this could be some interesting takeaways for the audience um, about vision. To me, it's obvious you have a vision and you can tell us your personal vision. Obviously, part of it involves at-risk youth, you know, working in that. But what's your big vision? And then maybe how do you help people find theirs? Yeah, um... You know, one of the things that I was reviewing in your your material was um, like, what are some of the fears, right? And for uh-huh. me, early on, it was being considered a leader. So there was a time in my life where um, I kept ending up in leadership roles, but I didn't consider myself a leader. I was just volunteering or helping or whatever, right? Um, but I kept ending up in these leadership roles. And finally, one day I woke up kind of to myself and went, gosh, I keep ending up here. I better learn how to do this. Yeah. And I had a mentor at the time. I wasn't a reader, a book reader. And I had a mentor at the time told me to get over myself and start reading books. And, mm-hmm. and so I did, and I dove into leadership books and, and then I couldn't get enough of them. Mm-hmm. I got a bookshelf full of them right here in my office. And so that's, that's how I started feeding that piece of me that now wanted to learn how do I become a leader, right? Mm-hmm. So then over time, I started wanting to define for my own personal life, what that meant to me specifically, right? And so I, I developed a, a kind of a template, I guess, a vision and a mission and a method statement. And it's the why, what, and how for how I function and operate, right? And so um, I read a book called Start With Why by Simon Sinek. That helped me frame what I wanted to do. Then the real work began. And, and here's an interesting point. Uh, what I've found over time, and as I even talk to other leaders in the community, most people don't want to put the work into this part of who they are because it's, it is work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's scary work because you got to search your soul a little bit. And, you know, sometimes you got to fix some crap and, and figure mm-hmm. yourself out and align yourself with, you know, values, your values and where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And so, people shy away from it because that part's scary too, right? But I, I was intent on getting it done. And so from that book, I learned how to start articulating these short, concise statements that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I, over time, it took about a couple months, but I came up with my own personal vision for my life, my why. Mm-hmm. And it's why I get out of bed every day. And it's not just what I do, right? So you go, you go to a, a networking event. And the first question typically that you're asked after you get a name is, what do you do? The challenge with that is for 30 years, you can tell people what you do and you can feel like you're contributing value to society under that banner. The real challenge is when you don't do that thing anymore, right? And so then who are you? And I, and I bump into people today that are trying to figure that out coming into retirement now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and there's, it's a scary space for them because they don't know because they were what they did for their life, you know, in their life's work. And so I came up with a vision statement for my own life. And that is to inspire others to challenge the status quo. Nice. When I dialed that down that tight, um, what I realized is I can do that anywhere. 
Currently, I do it here at the Croc Center. I did do it at Habitat for Humanity, and I did do it when I worked in frontline service with at-risk youth, mm-hmm. right? That's who I am. Where I get to do that is secondary. Right. But I'll always be that, right? And then, of course, with that vision, like, how do I, how do I carry that out? So I created a mission statement, and that's, that's recently morphed, actually. So you go back to these things, and you continue to fine-tune them. But my, my mission statement is find others who align with that vision and create transformational space together. So, so that plays out in, in many different ways, right? So if I get out in the community and I'm stoked about something, right now I'm trying to start a conversation around building an Olympic swimming pool here in Salem. <laughs> um, and I have talked to the mayor and a county commissioner and two different um, economic development people, one from the county, one from the city, um, that have expressed interest in the conversation, right? So it's not a, I thought it would die out of the gate because I'm like the crazy guy who has this big uh, obnoxious ideas. Um, <laughs> But it didn't die right out of the gate. I've had two meetings uh, with elected officials around it, right? And so anyway, stuff like that. My point though is people want to come around vision, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if, if you can cast that vision and they can start to see it, they start to come together, right? So my mission to find others who align and then create that transformational space, when I'm driven by my vision, that second piece happens naturally. It's almost like you're a magnet, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's the belief. Like when I get in front of people, if, if I'm allowed to speak to a group, it, it just, I don't know how to describe it. It just comes out, right? Because mm-hmm. I believe so strongly that this thing could happen that some people even have told me over time, like, I didn't even know what I was signing up for, but you sounded like you could probably do it. And so I wanted to help, right? And so, so it's kind of fun. Right. And then I, I have a, a method to it also, though, and that is by building mutually beneficial relationships wherever I go. Uh, and so so all these pieces come together. So here's an example of that. When I was in workforce, I wanted to create a program for kids. Uh, I went out and I listened to employers and employers were just lamenting on how kids these days don't know how to be in the workplace. And they don't. We don't really teach them that in school. And as and parents so, don't teach them very well either. Right. <laughs> And so I thought, well, if they don't know how, I'm a pretty simple guy. If they don't know how to be in the workplace, then the best way to teach them how to be in the workplace is to put them in the workplace, right? Okay, so how do we do that? So I conceived this idea of a, um, a countywide system that would coordinate the efforts of the state, I was hoping at that point, nonprofits and the local business community to give young people first-time work experience. Now, when I kind of started with this notion, I was talking to my staff and they kept taking me to the whiteboard and trying to hammer it out. I was trying to get them to understand the concept. They were struggling with it a little bit. And then finally one day it clicked for them. And that's when we started gaining some traction on how to implement. And um, uh, I started getting out in the community and talking to people about what could be I went and knocked on the state's door to ask for funding to scale the scale the program, but at that point it was still kind of conceptual. We were starting to get some traction. Anyway, the state was like meh, and so I'm like, okay, I'll just keep going. And so then it really started to get some traction, and I got a call one day from um, the governor's chief of staff. This was Governor Kitzhaber at the time, and they're like, hey, we want to talk to you. And I'm like, oh crap, what did I do? <laughs> And they're like, no, uh, we want to talk to you about this youth program that you're doing. 
oh, cool, okay. And so my uh, chief operating officer and I go over and we sit down in this big fancy room over at the Capitol and uh, the governor's chief of staff and another gal was there and they said, well, we just wanna know how we can help. And I said, well, I don't want this to look state run because it's very grassroots right now. They said, oh, no, 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 no. We just wanna know how we can help. And I said, okay, the best way for you to help is to um, give me money to scale the program. If you can help me with funding, I can scale this into, into four counties. And um, here's what I'll do. And I said, for every dollar that you give me, I will match it with an employer dollar. And so we kind of wrapped up the conversation. They were excited about it, but we didn't, you know, there was no promises made and out the door we went. And so we were like, well, that was a fun conversation. I wonder, wonder what's gonna happen. Uh, about two months later, it didn't take very long really, I got a phone call uh, from the workforce policy advisor. And she said, um, we found some money for your program. I said, oh, really? She said, yeah, $500,000. <laughs> Can you use it? And I said, yes. <laughs> I was shocked actually. Uh, 250,000 came from the Oregon Employment Department budget and 250,000 came from Governor Kitzhaber's um, strategic reserve fund. And, wow. and by that, I mean, he actually had to sign off mm -hmm. to transfer those funds. So that was hugely exciting. And there's another fun story about how, you know, I, I connected with the governor over youth stuff at a, at a previous engagement. Anyway, um, and so we utilized that, that money to launch a system, right? I wasn't building a project or a program. I was building a system that was behind the scenes. So anyone who would raise their hand and say, I want to help youth succeed with workforce skills had a place to do it. So this, if I'm the state, I can fund capacity. If I'm a nonprofit, I can refer my clients or I can be a work site. Mm -hmm. And if I'm an employer, I can offer a first time work opportunity. So long story short, with the 500,000, we did um, over 200 unique work experiences mm -hmm. in four counties with just over 40 employers in 18 months. Wow. That's what I'm talking about. When you know who you are, what you're driven by, how you wanna do life, people come to the campfire, right? right? And I didn't know if I could do it, really. I mean, I believed I could, but I didn't know how it would come together or uh, what kind of obstacles I would face. And boy, I had people telling me I was nuts. I, it was funny, like, it's funny how bold people will be sometimes actually. Um, and I, you know, take it with a grain of salt and move on to those because my mission is find others who align. Right. And then build transformational space together, right? That statement right there keeps me moving. If I hit a door, if I hit a roadblock, mm -hmm. that statement keeps me moving. And here's the beauty of understanding those things about yourself. The, my most favorite thing actually out of putting all that together back then was um, knowing what to say no to, right? And it, here's a struggle. So if, if, if you're a young leader listening to this podcast, um, one of the biggest struggles young leaders have is trying to be all things to all people mm -hmm. because you don't know who they are yet. My encouragement is, Figure out who you are first and then go be that in your community, right? Then you don't run yourself ragged trying to, I used to be a yes guy, didn't want to disappoint anyone. Right. And when I got this figured out, oh, the freedom of no, unbelievable. And so now I don't even, I don't even have to question it. I just run the thing through this filter and I know what to do. And so many of us, myself included, when you run up against hardships or ob obstacles, you're knocking on doors. People are thinking you're crazy. 
would have just said, this is too hard. I'm just, I'm yeah. just this isn't yeah. for me. But I literally had I have to say this, uh, we were in a, a workforce board meeting. This thing's getting built out. It's, it's working. It's coming together. It's getting its own light. And I literally had a county commissioner look me in the eye and say, oh, that's never going to work. <laughs> and I just chuckled to myself. You just keep thinking that. Right. <laughs> but without your vision, it probably wouldn't have. Your vision, your mission, and your method. You know, right. it, it wouldn't have worked because that's a lot of no's and a lot, yeah. a lot of yeah. crazy looks you get that you have to be able to withstand and say, no, I know this is the purpose. It's fun after a while, you know, you kind of just make a game out of it. <laughs> and that's actually good advice for, you know, if you're afraid right. to knock on the governor's door or whatever, just what's the worst? I'm not going to die from a no. Yeah, so. Exactly. so that's the other thing, right? When we talk about fear, if you understand who you are, you can, you can step into fear a little quicker right? Mm -hmm. uh, the human psyche has a propensity to make things worse than they really are, mm -hmm. right? And so some people are wired to really dive down that rabbit hole and then just, you know, cower. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, others are wired a little bit more to step into that. But even, I can even catch myself at times starting to kind of spin the how bad, how bad it's going to be story. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I catch it pretty quick now, but, but that can, freeze you. Right. Right. And so again, if you know who you are, you know what you want to be about that thing burns so hot in the soul that you can't wake up on any given day and not try to go do it. That's, that's a kind of a self accountability component. Maybe it, life wouldn't feel right. Once you understand what's driving you, you've got to go do it mm -hmm. right. Or life doesn't feel right. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of why I, I started this podcast too. Lord knows I have enough other stuff going on. You know, I do, but there's a desire inside of me to help up, uplift and create a vision in people who feel stuck in right. their lives. Maybe instead of like maybe teens in your case, to me, it's like middle, middle agers, you know, 30, 40, 50 year olds yeah. who went on the path they were supposed to go on and yeah. then realized I'm clocking in, clocking out. And there's no passion, no meaning, you yes. know. So I, I, I was uh, I was speaking to a group of um, career tech education folks. I was asked to to be at a, at a community college organized districts from around the state to come together, and and I got to speak about career tech education stuff and kids, right? But I I, I found a moment during that talk where this fit in my personal vision, mission, and, and method, and so I just kind of weaved it in there. And uh, I had a lady come up afterwards. Now, mind you, that was a C-Tech, a career tech education conference. She came up to me afterwards and she was older and, and you could tell, you know, and, and she came up and she said, so that stuff that you were talking about, about vision for your life, do you think that would still work for me? Of everything that I talked about, mm -hmm. that's what she hung on to, right? So, so there is this, deep space in the soul that's and it's in everyone right. whether they ignore it or recognize it it's in everyone that has to be filled with something and it has to be filled with something that's bigger than yourself right right and so for most people they can they can uh kind of mask it a little bit with what they do and that works for a lot of years mm -hmm. right 
but you come to a transition point in your life or you lose a job, mm -hmm. right? When the economy got bad in 08, I was in workforce. People were losing jobs that they had had for 20, 25, 30 years, right? That smacks you right in the face and it can take you down. And then COVID, that happened to a yep. lot of people here recently. Yep. I, like you said, who are you without your job? Yeah, right, um, right. That's when you so need vision. When you know that, you can look at life a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Yes, struggles are still going to happen. How do I get? How do I get through it based on who I am and who I want to be to the world? Yeah. And some people might be skeptics, saying, "Well, that all sounds great, but I still have to make a living. You know, I still have bills to pay and all that. It can't be all pie in the sky." Right. What What would you tell somebody like that? So. If, if that's where they are in their head, um, there's something that's holding them back, mm -hmm. right? Just, just the statement alone and that, the tone that you would hear in, in that kind of a comment, right? My heart would go out to them. Uh, and probably what I would say is, but who are you? Who are you? And what do you, what do you want to bring to the world? Yes, you have to have a job and earn a living and all of that stuff, but it hurts my soul to meet someone who has been doing something for a lot of years, eight, 10 years, and they don't like it. And they'll tell you, I don't really like my job. Well, then what are you doing? Like, why are you still there? That's a choice, yeah. right? Um, and so it's interesting because last night my daughter and I went out to dinner and she, she was getting a little introspective and she's like, you know what I realized? Everything is a choice. She's 18 years old. She holds two jobs. Everything is a choice. And I said, it is. And she unfolded it a little bit. And I said, yeah, you're right. You are the sum of your choices. For sure. Yeah. And so, so to that person, everything is a choice. What do you want to choose? Right. But some of that, again, is that soul searching piece, which can be scary. And then figuring out who you want to be. And it doesn't matter your age. At any age, you can get this done. You just have to be willing to put in the, the effort. Find mentors, read books, listen to podcasts, um, whatever it takes. Start filling your head with that stuff so that that um, you can move in the in the right direction. Right, I think that's a great advice, and uh, you know that goes out to all the must be nice people. You know, yeah. must be nice to be able. You know, I know. Oh, yeah. Well, so here's the thing choice. too. So a personality like mine can can be intimidating to someone who's not wired to in their mind, be a visionary. But going back to that, that void in the soul, everyone needs a vision, but it doesn't have to be their own. And the thing is, if, if, you're, if you don't consider yourself a visionary, find someone whose vision you resonate with mm -hmm. and then make that your own. Support that thing, whatever it is, join it, support it, get behind it, figure out who you wanna be within it, how you wanna contribute to it. You make it your, you make it your own. So, so not being a visionary isn't an excuse for not figuring out how to bring your value to the world, right? So somebody might look at me and go, yeah, but you're just like that. That's not an excuse for, for them. Still figure out how do you bring your value to the world? And you do that by finding a vision that you can connect with. Finding the visionary who's casting the vision that you want to connect with, right? right? Yeah. And I 100% agree, and I'm going to be asking you about podcasts and books, but 
once you go there, I mean, literally, I remember, I've always been a reader, but I remember going to bookstores and seeing the self-help or personal development or whatever section and seeing people there going, oh, what a loser, you know, <laughs> and then that's like all I read now, you know, right. and I mean, that's like totally what I'm into. Yeah. But it That and podcasts have literally changed my life. I mean, that's why I'm here doing what I'm doing. So, I mean, I love that, but yeah, you can stay, you can stay stuck or you can yeah. take one step. And that'll lead to another step. And then you'll find yourself there in the bookstore. <laughs> right. And when you're stuck, that's your brain telling you everything that's going to go wrong if you try to go somewhere else. Right. Right. That's that, that the mind taking over and it's powerful. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, you have to overcome, overcome that piece. Right. And, and one of the ways to do that, if, if you really want something in life, help someone else get it. And, and it comes to you right? I, it can be anything, money, friends, whatever, um, uh, a goal, help someone else get it, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there's, a, there's that great section in the bookstore, the self-help section. Where's the section in the bookstore that's the help others section? Who writes those books? You're right. It's in Not some there. of those. <laughs> being, <laughs> right? being more outward focused, you know, will right. always help you for sure. Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, I love it. So we're going to, I know we're probably coming up on our time here and I want to be respectful because you have things going on. Do you have, before we go into your book recommendations and podcasts and all that, well, actually you already said this um, wow. about um, <laughs> a meaningful, practical takeaway. You said you can have a vision and it doesn't necessarily have to be your own. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Attach yourself or align yourself with a vision. Yeah. Yeah, don't feel like you have to come up with it on your own. I love that. Okay, so since you're a reader now, haven't always been, what's a book that you can recommend to the audience or that has had an effect on you in your sure. life? Sure. Um, I struggled between two, actually. One's called Multipliers, How to Make the Best, or How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. Um, and then the other one that I'm currently reading, I just... I love the concept of it. It's The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. It was a third book. Leaders Eat Last was his second book. Uh, but in The Infinite Game, he's unfolding the concept that there's finite and infinite games, right? So a finite game is baseball, basketball, football, soccer, volleyball. Mm -hmm. Those are games with defined rules. And ultimately, there is a winner and there is a loser, okay? Life is an infinite game. And there's infinite games everywhere, right? And if you're an infinite thinker as a leader of an organization or as a leader of your own life, uh, you open yourself to more possibilities mm -hmm. because now there isn't an, a winner and a loser. Now it's how long can I play the game? How long can I stay in the game? And leaders with, with finite mindsets that lead organizations, those organizations start dying off after a while. They don't get out. They don't collaborate. They don't, they don't do the things they need to do to, to continue to grow and innovate. Infinite leadership, on the other hand, is always looking for that next thing. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, but you're still in the game. So the question is, how long can you stay in the game? You're not going to wake up one day and say, I won life. Right. Game over, right? Well, you certainly won't wake up when game's over. But. <laughs> right. 
but it's a that's an infinite game, right? Life yeah. is an infinite game. Uh, organizations that think from an an infinite game mindset actually are more innovative. Their people are are their cultures are better. Their people are contributing better, and so forth. And so, yeah, uh, the Infinite Game by Simon Sinek is, is a great read. So, an example that is coming to my mind, and tell me if you think this is true or not, of businesses is Blockbuster versus Netflix. Yes, Blockbuster didn't want to think outside the box or and there's one blockbuster store now yeah in and bend I, oregon huh. really it's in, yeah, it's in bend oregon mm-hmm. oh i didn't know that i mean yeah, yeah. but so, you know go ahead i have the netflix guy's book on my shelf I, I read it it's an amazing amazing story he went to blockbuster when they were on the verge of bankruptcy and offered to sell the company to blockbuster and blockbuster's like ah, people aren't going to get behind that right <laughs> i just think that's funny and now it's the billion dollar business uh-huh. yep. that got us through COVID for sure. Yes, right, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Okay, so let's move on to quotes. I'm a gatherer of quotes that are inspirational. Yeah. So what's one that you love and maybe why, what it means to you? So um, one of my favorites is don't aspire to be a leader. Aspire to be a person who can lead. Now, I Googled that and there's... I think I came up with it, but I think it was a distillation of all the input over my life, right? Yeah. Um, Because here's, here's, here's what I love about the statement. Don't aspire to be a leader. A leader, when people think of leaders, they think of people with titles, a CEO, you know, whatever, a manager, you know, titles. There are so many people that hold titles in this world who do not know how to be, Mm -hmm. right? And it's sad. In fact, most people today don't leave their jobs. They leave their bosses. Leave. Leave. Yeah. As in, I'm going to quit and go somewhere else. What they're doing is they're leaving a terrible boss. Mm -hmm. They they don't mind the work. They mind their terrible boss, Mm -hmm. right? So don't aspire to to be a leader. Aspire to be a person who can lead. That's more personal. I don't have to have a title to do that. It's right. who you are from within. Yes. It's not, it's not your title that you can dictate to people because anyone can do that. Does that you move up the ranks and you can start dictating. Right. But you can be that title and just people don't have the vision either. So they're not going to follow it. So yeah, I think yeah. within you, you're the type of person that inspires other people, yeah. not, not by your position. Right, exactly. I mean, the difference is leadership and management, right? In my estimation, you manage systems, mm-hmm. you lead people. People don't want to be managed. Right. They want to be led. Right. Right. Yeah. Love that. Okay. How about podcasts? Is there a couple, one, two that you enjoy listening to that inspire you? Yeah. Of course, Simon Sinek, because he's been a powerful influence in my life. Um, Brene Brown. Oh, gosh. I love her to death. And I just love her, her rawness at times, too, right? Right. Uh, she just says it like it is, yeah. um, but her her approach uh, and how she comes at stuff. And then another favorite for me is Bigger Pockets Radio. It's a real estate investment um, mm. uh, podcast. Yeah. But what I like about it is their format is getting the story of of the person who took real estate and did something with it. Oh. So they talk about their struggles. They talk about what scared them. They talk about how long it took them to just engage things like that. So yeah. those are leadership stories to me. Yeah. 
And yeah. also, I mean, that's the kind of stuff, that's why I have this format. I like to hear the story, the progression that you're not right. just on top of the world right now and right. You know, no one can relate, you know, because exactly. there's always those, what is the saying you either about failure? It's not failure. You either win or you learn something like that. Oh, right. You yeah. know, because there's no progress without failure. We're so afraid right. to fail. Yeah. But there is absolutely no progress because there are going to be setbacks and failures. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So here's a new question that I posed just for you. And it is, what do most people not know about you that would surprise them? Now that it's been several years later, it's that um, I spent a year of my life with my family after Hurricane Katrina in Gulfport, Mississippi, helping to rebuild after the storm. That fit a lot of components of, of me into it in that I was there working with at-risk youth who were coming from their youth build programs from all around the country mm -hmm. with their newfound skill sets to help low-income families rebuild on the Gulf Coast. We did 100, over that year, we did 126 rehabs or rebuilds with students from around the country who were turning wow. their life around. Yeah. And again, I'd like to point out that you just kind of glossed over that. You had a family that you moved oh, yeah. for a year across the country to yeah. be of service. So, I mean, that's inspiring. That's great. And again, I know Colleen and, you know, <laughs> I know you have great kids, but you know, they, that support behind you is also good, but that's, that's amazing. Cause that's, yeah, it was fun. It was one of the best years of our life, actually. I can tell you from being originally from Oregon and moving to the South, it's two different worlds, yeah, yeah, totally different worlds. So, I mean, kudos to you for that. Yeah, and, and living there helps you imbibe the culture better, right? right. As opposed to just visiting and then leaving. Right. Yeah, and you know what's funny about that is here in Oregon after the storms, people would see the footage on television, and they would they would ask the question, "Why would anyone ever rebuild there?" Right. Okay. I remember. So almost judgmental, right? right? You get down there and you imbibe yourself in that culture, and then you know why. Right. This is their home. They don't know anything else. And when you ask the question, well, why didn't they just leave? They didn't have any place to go. Right. They could go to grandma's or aunt's across town. But what do you mean? Why didn't they just leave? Right. right? This is your home. Of course, you're going to rebuild your home. Right. Yeah, but you wouldn't get that perspective fully without actually going and visiting. We were there six months after the storm. I took a group of kids down and uh, the, not the army, um, one of the military groups had just cleaned up all the streets and so forth and yeah. they could get around, right? And so I have my, my at-risk kids from here and we pull into a neighborhood. The Gulf Coast is beautiful. The ocean's right there, right? Three of the blocks are leveled and the fourth block is in terrible shape. I pull into the neighborhood, let everybody get out, and it got really quiet. So as soon as you stand up, you can see through the weeds all the foundations of the homes, right? But then you also see personal effects, mm -hmm. children's toys, a lawnmower, a television set, a dining room table, a chair, you know, things like that. And those kids, this is the quietest I've ever seen them. They were walking around kind of soaking that up. Yeah. And we, we debriefed it later, and they said... Um, we didn't know what it meant to have nothing. Oh. These people have nothing because it was wiped out, right? So it was fun to see them make those um, connections. And I think that's a good point. 
about judgment when you're when you haven't been there you haven't live there you have to immerse yourself to know to have empathy you know right right exactly yeah i love that that's inspiring too tony (laughs) (laughs) okay so ending on a light note but i think it's also a good question for you is is there a movie that you watch over and over and why or what does it mean to you so i think the movie i've watched the most is the greatest showman so here's what's funny about that I, I kind of was hearing about it when it first came out and I knew it was a musical and I'm not a big fan of musicals. Right. And my daughter comes home. It's like, Oh, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. I'm like, eh, I don't know. It's a musical. Yeah. And then she showed me a trailer. And at the end of the, the official trailer, you can Google it. It, it closes. The trailer closes with uh, PT Barnum saying no one ever made a difference by being like everyone else. Mm-hmm. And that got me. I'm like, okay, I'll go watch it. And so we went to the theater, of course, and and um, went back again a, a little bit later. Actually, we took the rest of the <laughs> took the rest of the family, um, and then watched it at home a few times. And like, but but the beauty of that story is, and I love these kinds of stories. I could probably come up with some other movies, in this this framework. But the framework is, I have a crazy idea. The world is telling me I can't pull it off. I believe in my soul. I can. And I do. Mm-hmm. That was P.T. Barnum, the Barnum and Bailey right. Circus Company, right? And so I just love those kind of stories. And that yeah. full circle back to your vision, challenging the status quo, right? Oh, Isn't yeah. that what he did? Yeah, yeah, so exactly. It's exactly what he did. Here's a story about that movie. Um, I was involved in an online summit during COVID. It was called the Dreamer Festival. We had all these guest speakers come in. Justin Paul, who wrote all the sound or the lyrics, songs, whatever, for that movie, he was on. He was speaking to us and he was also playing. It was awesome. But what he told us was that movie almost didn't get made. Rejection after rejection, because it was a musical, the concept was not good, but he, like you, they kept knocking on doors and, you know, look what happened. So yeah, that was, that was really inspiring. I did not know that. That's, that's interesting. Wow. Okay. So coming to the end of our time, I really thank you for your your time and for your service really to everybody. Thank you. Is there anything we haven't covered or any final thoughts that you want to leave with the audience? I would say, you know, if you're, if you're considering what leadership means to you or you're struggling at some, at some point in your life with this, this concept of leadership, reach out, find a mentor, Get into podcasts, TED Talks, books, whatever it takes, but don't do nothing. Do something to help you get over that that hump or that fear, uh, because there is no there's no greater joy in life than living out who you are and giving yourself to the world in that space. Mm-hmm. Right? And when you get into that space, um, you're not working anymore. I don't. I told my staff the other day, I'm not looking for a job anymore. I want a cause to fight. This mm-hmm. isn't a job to me. We got stuff to do. Right. And so, so I would just encourage the listener to, to not stop. Figure out what you need to do to get over this hump and press on. Love it. Great last words. Well, I'm sure there might be people who want to connect with you. Do you have any social media or email or anything, how people can connect? I'll list in the sure. notes too, whatever I, 
I missed the um, social media boat really in terms of just like being the guy that's connected everywhere. Um, and so at some point, maybe someday if I get rich and famous, I'll have a staff, you know, when this podcast really pays off, I'll have a staff. <laughs> do that for me. Um, yes. uh, but I do my personal email, Tony Frazier, 2017, 2017 at gmail.com. And that's Frazier with a Z F R A Z I E R. And then um, my consulting company is whiteboard CP as in consulting partners, whiteboard CP at gmail.com. Thank you. Yeah. And if somebody wasn't inspired today, they got to check their pulse. <laughs> well, thank and, you. And I just want to say to the audience, go out and do something for yes. somebody else. Yes. Find your vision and your soul's calling. Amen. All right. Thanks, Tony. Thank you thank for you. joining me. And we will pleasure. talk again soon. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Beacons of Bravery podcast. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you would go and rate and review the show and also share it with somebody who you think would benefit from listening to the message. I would also love to connect with you on Instagram or you can email me at beaconsofbravery at gmail.com. I hope something that you heard today will help you go out and live a more joy-filled, inspired life. Don't keep playing it safe. Be brave today. And of course, a huge shout out to Steve Denny for providing the music for this podcast.